I told someone earlier today, one of the difficulties of traveling is you tend to go to so many places that are new and different and uh, consequently you're, you're constantly running into new things, new circumstances, new people. And there's a tension to that. Uh, not that it's bad, there's just a tension. But then you get to come to places like this where I just consider kind of a second home and uh, that makes this kind of a trip just so much better. So I want to thank you all for letting me back, be back here. And thank you for the service already. There's been some significant things that I didn't even know had been planned but are going to fit so well with some of the things that I really feel compelled to share. Uh, Francis has probably expressed uh, at least more enthusiastically, if not any more clearly, some of the things I feel too about what's going on today around the Christian community. And that's that these terms that are, in one sense are just absolutely correct and necessary and helpful, like radical and, and things like that, uh, unfortunately have been put into a context of Christian living and understanding that are so subnormal that now radical seems to be the best way to describe what in the book of Acts and in the early church to me, as Francis rightly pointed out, would have just been absolutely normal. And if they'd looked at us, if they could come back and look at our lives, and I say this by confession, including myself, I'm not at all admonishing you all without including me, it's just pitiful. <laughs> We as congregations, we as individuals, uh, in terms of the significance of what's going on all around the world, as opposed to what basically is happening and has happened for so many generations in Western American Christianity, we just don't get it. If you haven't traveled overseas, if you haven't gone some places where God is doing some amazing things, and quite frankly, I tell people all the time, just get out of the country. I don't even care if it's a mission trip. Just get to a different culture and recognize that we are not normal. We are abnormal. And the rest of the world looks at us, or we unfortunately look at ourselves and uh, maybe draw some wrong conclusions about uh, even what church is to be and how it's to look and, and all the rest. So having said some of that, again, uh, the thanks for being here and uh, hospitality, the warm welcome. I bring you greetings uh, from even warmer greetings from South Texas where it was about 75 when I left a couple of days ago. And uh, our ministry at To Every Tribe is located as far south as you can get in Texas and still be in the continental United States. Uh, geographically, uh, Harlingen, Los Fresnos, Brownsville, that Rio Grande Valley, geographically is further south than Miami, Florida. So it gives you again a little bit of a perspective if geography wasn't your best subject uh, in high school. Um, but I also appreciate the fact, as, as someone already shared this morning, you know, I think it was Aaron, this perspective of the church, we are the local church, and this certainly is 
a church that's located geographically in Anniston, but look around and, and understand that you are a significant part of the church. And I don't think we get that enough. I don't think we feel that. I don't think we feel our connectedness enough. So let me bring you greetings not only from Los Fresnos, Texas, and the church that's there, but from the church in Papua New Guinea. Uh, amazing, unbelievable people and stories uh, that we could spend many, many more days talking about. Uh, and let me bring you greetings from the church in Mexico. Uh, villages that we'll talk about if I can all open the invitation to you all to stay for the mealtime and a little bit more specific presentation of to every tribe that'll be at that time period. Uh, villages in, in such remote areas in the mountains of Mexico, they don't even speak Spanish. They speak Indian dialects like Mistec and, and others. Uh, and yet, the church. So feel that this morning as we talk a little bit more about uh, some of the things that I feel compared, compelled to share. And then especially as we get back into the book of Acts. So let me also, if I can, if this is going to work for us. Maybe it isn't. Our, there we go. There we go. Readings from my wife, who I haven't seen for about three weeks, so I always like to get her picture up there and be reacquainted. And the newest member of our family, I became a new grandfather two days ago. And unlike the website that says six grandchildren, I actually have 14, eight years old and under. And I bring you greetings from this unreached people group, <laughs> this tribe of, uh, of people. Uh, one of the slides that we show often, in fact, almost always, just to remind ourselves of why we exist. I mentioned we're church planters, and it's because there are currently basically 7 billion people. Maybe that's back this up once. There we go. And over a third of them still fall into the category of being unreached. And again, maybe we'll do a little bit more this afternoon at the mealtime about definitions. Unreached, unengaged, there's been some specific language in the mission world about what denotes each. But let me just say in general, it means they, they don't have access to the gospel. And it doesn't just mean in a person's lifetime that's living today. It means in the entire history of their culture, they may never have once even heard the name of Jesus Christ proclaimed. And it's, it's that third of the world that exists, that still exists, that's categorized as unreached, that we particularly as a ministry focus our attention. We are church planters to unreached people groups. And I want to just share like two or maybe three basic thoughts. I, I, I don't know about you as you sit and listen to speakers or preachers or whatever you want to call us, but uh, sometimes I'm afraid we can preach so eloquently and wax eloquent for a long periods of time and then people walk away and say, what, 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 was, what was his real focus? I've got two or three things I want you to take away this morning. One is God gets people where he wants them. 
And I know we've got some people that I've already heard about even in this congregation that are going to travel down to South Texas on Saturday or whatever day they leave to come down. Friday, I guess you're going to plan to get down there and come to our open house where we've got 60 plus people that are coming down as prospective students and staff. And some of you are wondering, what's the next step in my life? What's God want in my life or for my life? Some of you who are here probably college age and, and though I probably look like I can't remember my own name. I do remember those days and they're scary, exciting days. The whole life, Lord willing, if he tarries and, and things go just kind of a normal pattern, your whole life's ahead of you. But what is that life going to be all about? You don't have a clue yet. That's the scary and the exciting part of it. Well, I want you to know in essence uh, generally speaking, uh, no matter whether you're talking about mission or anything else, God's going to get you where he wants you. That's the sovereignty of God. That's the providence of God. So take your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 9. I want you to just real quickly look at a text of Scripture. I might have even shared this particular passage the last time I was here. But I want to use this text as context for looking at the book of Acts and some of the things that we find there that hopefully will do what Francis Chan was attempting to do and help us get a better general understanding of what the real norm is when we talk about following Jesus, being a disciple of Jesus, looking like a Christian as the Bible talks about it, not necessarily Western Christianity depicts it. They may be almost completely different animals when compared side by side that way. Look at uh, Matthew chapter 9 and this text that, uh, depending on your translation, I use the NIV still, but the headings that are often in translations, in my book, in my, in my translation, it says the workers are few. <laughs> and I, I've heard probably dozens of messages on this text and inevitably, they often take a negative spin. And I don't think that's the point of the text at all. I think it goes back to what I just shared with you. God gets people where he wants them. Now there's some particular issues that are going on in this text. In this one, it says the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask or pray the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. And I just want you to kind of take a word-by-word -word look at this text. And I don't know, well, you guys, any of you here from CO? Are some of you part of CO? You do Bible interpretation, inductive Bible study as part of your training, right? If I understand some of what CO does. Is it the OIA method? Do they even identify that method? See, that's kind of what I use in my own personal study. And one of the, I love it because it's simple. <laughs> and that means I can do it and I can understand it and I can even get something out of it. And one of the first principles of that approach to inductive Bible study is just look for repeated words. And I've even helped you out here. <laughs> I should have asked you before I put that particular slide up, 
what word was repeated, but it's pretty clear the word is harvest. So this text has something to say about a harvest. And let me just say, first of all, this morning, in the context of biblical Christianity and the context of theology, where we understand all men to be lost, to be sinners, to be totally depraved in theological terms. Aren't you thankful that as we understand a text like this, that's giving us an illustration or a picture of something about the gospel, that the fact of the matter is there is a harvest. I thank God for that. Because it didn't have to be. (laughs) Our harvest unto death, for sure, because of my spiritual condition but no promises no responsibilities on God's part in one sense for there to be a harvest unto life so praise God there is this harvest and I come though I work in in South Texas I live in central Pennsylvania I live in a rural farming area community of about 7,000 people, Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. The only thing anybody probably ever knows about Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, one of two things. There's a major federal penitentiary there, and uh, right next to it, not far up the road, is Allenwood, and some of the the Watergate guys were were put there back when all that took place. And the other thing is Bucknell University, which is a fairly significant school if you're going into engineering or finance and the East Coast. That's located there. Other than that, not so much. (laughs) And Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, I know something about harvest. Some of you maybe that are gardeners, you know something about harvest. And what else does this text tell us about this particular harvest? How is it identified? The fact of the matter is, beyond the good news that there is one, it's a plentiful harvest. I don't know what it's been like in Georgia, But the last few years in Texas have been pretty sparse as far as rainfall and as a result crops, even to the point that a couple of years ago, most if not all of the major cattle owners sold off all of their cattle. You wonder why meat prices are high today? Because about two years ago, they were in the middle of a three to four year drought and they could not even afford to feed their cattle and sold them off rode off the loss. And things are just kind of getting rebuilt. So we don't always have plentiful harvests, do we? In fact, we know something about famine, but this is a plentiful harvest. And I love that picture, kind of get it in your mind. So here's this, they've planted, they've watered, they've sown, and now there's, they're expecting the harvest. They see it in front of them. Man, it's a bumper crop. What else does he tell us? And I love these little words. This is, uh, if you know, and I'm not an English grammar student by any stretch of the imagination, but the word but is a contrast word. And so whatever's been said before, there's going to be some contrast with what follows. And this plenteous harvest is being contrasted by what point in the text? We're told something about a harvest, but now we're going to be told something about this plenteous harvest is contrasted by the fact that there are few workers. 
So there's that picture. We've got this bumper crop. And, and in Texas, like Florida, there's citrus groves and, and trees are just still, even now, after first of the year, they're just hanging literally with, with, with grapefruit and oranges and tangerines. And you can see these trucks, these massive trucks pulling into the field, these people just pouring out of them to come and harvest this plentiful harvest of citrus crop today. And, and what would it be like if there were only one or two people to do that? You, know, you would tend to think that this would be an element of discouragement. I don't think that's the key to this text. I think it's a reality. I think it tells us something about ourselves, not only as human beings, but even as professing Christians that may or may not be all that positive. But I don't think that's the key to the text. With a plentiful harvest that's facing us and the reality of few workers, what's the next thing the text directs us to? What's the next word? Ask, or as it's translated in other passages, pray. And notice this word, I don't know if I, eh, Lord of the harvest, let's back up. A couple of translations says, ask therefore. And the point being, we're to pray, we're to ask somebody something, especially in particular because there's a plentiful harvest but with few workers. That's to be the motivation for praying and we're to pray to whom? Again, pretty obviously the Lord of the harvest. And again, on a positive note, which I think the text is primarily positive throughout the, the whole of it, on a positive note, aren't you thankful not only there is a harvest, but there, there's a Lord of the harvest. This, this, this word Lord that denotes lordship, authority, supremacy. Aren't you glad there's a Lord of the harvest and aren't you glad it's not me? And I'm pretty thrilled it's not you. That it's not up to you or me. It's not in your hands or in my hands. Whether there is a harvest or what's harvested. But we have a Lord of the harvest, therefore, to pray to. And what are we to pray for? Therefore, that He might, what? Send out workers. And this word, again, I haven't used this for a while. Yeah, I guess I do have it up here. It's the Greek word ekbalo. In fact, we've taken that, and this probably is the time because I always forget this. There's literature in the back over by our display. It's all free. Please take it. Please take it all. I don't want to take it back to South Texas. We've got some pieces here that tell you about the ministry. One of them is a magazine we've entitled Ekbalo. Because this is a significant word, not only in, in this text, but for us as a ministry. And this word ekbalo, literally translated, means to forcibly expel. To thrust out. In fact, it's used in another passage in, in, in Luke. It's connected later on in the text where Jesus, is, Jesus gives his disciples authority to expel demons, to Cast out demons. It's the same word, ekbalo. And I hope you get the intensity of the word, the, the focus of the word. It's a very forceful word. Pray therefore to the Lord of the harvest 
to send out, expel workers into the harvest field. Now, why do you think we need to pray that? Well, you say, because there's few workers. That's part of it. But why else? Well, this is probably going to become a shock to you to hear. But when I stand in front of a group like this and others over and over and over again, and we talk about going to unreached people groups, and they're unreached for a reason, they're hard to get to, they're dangerous. <laughs> they're dangerous just to get to, let alone when you get there. Unreached people groups are not interested in you coming and giving them the gospel. They're not all that excited once we do get there. There will be rocks or revival. And normally there's both. <laughs> and they're not always do they follow that order. Sometimes there's revival and then the rocks. Because once you see people's hearts being turned and their lives being completely shaped from a culture that once was, not everybody's thrilled about that. And when you start talking to people about spending their life doing this kind of thing, this is the part that's going to shock you. Not everybody rushes forward to volunteer. Isn't that amazing? I don't understand that. And I really don't understand that once you taste it. Once you've done it, once you've had the experience of walking down a dirt path and knowing maybe around that next corner is somebody that in the entire history of their culture has never heard the gospel and you get the privilege to be the first communicator of it, that's tough to beat. And you want me to sit behind a desk in an office? You can't pay me enough money to do that. So ask therefore the Lord of the harvest to send out, to expel them, to thrust them out. And I would, if I were a betting man, bet the few possessions I have in this life on the fact that there are people sitting in this auditorium at this moment, and before you ever heard the name Rod Connor or Two Every Tribe Ministries, you were wrestling with, what am I going to do with my life? Or you might even be saying something like, what on earth is going on in my life? I don't get, and you're uncomfortable or you're unsettled or you're confused. And may I suggest to you, rather than be frustrated, discouraged, anxious, that's all human, that's all going to come by default. Take courage, God's in control. And the very things going on in your life that are producing those kinds of feelings and thoughts and emotions are more likely God-given than anything else. And he's in the process of doing this very thing this text is talking about, following you because you probably wouldn't go where he wants to get you just left to yourself. Does anybody get encouraged by that? I guess not. <laughs> At least not in this room. I mean, I'm serious this morning. Do you understand as Francis Chan got excited about leaving this incredible ministry that God had given him and then go live in some remote isolated area? He understood God's sovereignty and providence and control in that as well as if he was directing him to Los Angeles, California. 
We need to understand that about God. He's purposeful. He ekbalos us. He will do anything and everything. This might not excite you as much, but we believe it to every tribe. He even does so much as intentionally employing suffering and hardship as part of his means. And you know how we Western Americans react so positively to suffering and hardship. I mean, drugstores would go out of business. Psychiatrists and psychologists would go out of business if we embraced and understood the sovereignty and providence of God over all things. And as Paul said so often, he delighted, that's the word he uses, literally translated, I delight in hardship. How do you say that? It's when you begin to understand how thick-headed we are and how hard-hearted and cold-hearted we are, the best of us, but God so knows us and loves us and has a purpose for our life that he will use any means and every means to direct us exactly where he wants us to go. Let's embrace that. We we do a two-year mission training. I, I love watching... So we call them interns because somebody doesn't like the term school and students. I don't know why. but <laughs> So I call them interns. To me, I'm, I'm, I'm in a community. Uh, it sounds too much like inmates. <laughs> and that, that is negative. But our interns for two years, I love watching them. And we put them deliberately into situations. We have a kind of a... Um, um, apprenticeship style format to our training where 60% of the two years is in class, 40% is in the field, especially in and out of Mexico. We go in and out of Mexico two, three times a month and we do it on purpose. We're church planning in, in villages near us, but we're also doing it because we want our interns to experience both the joy, the blessing of, of mission and ministry and church planning, but also the hardships, the struggles, and the difficulties. Because quite frankly, that's just life. And God doesn't promise you anything other than he's with you. And he'll lead you. And he'll guide you. And he'll use any and every means possible to do that. So as we look at our hardships, let's try to train ourselves to look at them through the eye of the sovereignty of God, not through the feelings of the flesh. And say, do you mean that these so-called bad things are actually on purpose? And I'd say that's exactly what I mean this morning. So ask therefore the Lord of the harvest to ekbalo workers into the harvest field. I couldn't think of anything better. I couldn't think of any greater promise than that. I couldn't have anything more hopeful in looking at a third of the seven billion people on our planet that are still unreached And why on earth even take the first step if we didn't have a verse like this? Now this is the Luke text. And let me back up here a minute. In case some of you aren't real fast readers. (laughs) 
I love the Luke text. It's, it's a companion passage. And of course, if you're going to do inductive Bible study, you, you better go look at the other passages that especially say almost exactly the same thing. And there's one significant difference in this text. Because he almost verbatim has the same message, but he adds another word in Luke, if you want to turn there, chapter 10, and you can look at it yourself. I better check my watch while I'm... What am I doing up here, Carlton? It's 20 after 11. What, how much time do I have? One or two more minutes? <laughs> You'll talk to me later, right? <laughs> the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out, to ekbalo, to forcibly expel, by whatever and, and every means possible, workers into the harvest field. And the very next word is what? Whoop, I'm backing up. Go. And you know what this says to me? So you see the situation, you, you understand what's going on here in terms of the world around us and the need of the gospel to be taken anywhere and everywhere, especially places where it's never been heard. And that's why we as a ministry, we're not putting ourselves up on some kind of pedal. We tell you that we're church planners to unreached people groups simply to help you understand we do this on purpose. We have a narrow focus on purpose. There's lots of other ministries doing lots of other wonderful things. We choose to target unreached people groups. That's our ministry. We're church planters. That's our DNA. And so when you understand the need that's there to do that, and then you realize the reality of the situation, there aren't that many people rushing forward to do it, but praise God, he's sovereign enough and in control enough, he's gonna get the people where he wants them. So you pray about it and then what? You become an answer to your own prayer. You get personally involved. You don't just ask, what's Grace Fellowship going to be doing about the unreached? You do something about the unreached. Pray, therefore, to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest field. Go! And, of course, often that's connected with literally go. Go get trained, go overseas, or go cross-culturally. But you physically Go, leave everything you know behind, which again is one of the reasons people don't rush to the front in response to this message. But then we also say not only is there goers in the physical sense, but there's senders of goers that get caught up with the same reality and understanding and the same martyr-mindedness because that's kind of our catchphrase to every type of ministry, this, this Acts 1.8 that says you will, as again, Aaron pointed out so well this morning, you will be my witnesses. The Greek word for witness there is martyreo. It's the same Greek word we get the root word for martyr. So let's get this martyr-minded mentality in the Christian life that the early church had. And I had planned to show you a handful of verses and passages and acts, and we aren't even going to get to them this morning. 
of the normal Christian life from the book of Acts. And how radical that looks to us today where people literally sold their possessions and nobody claimed what they had as their own and gave as anyone and everyone had need. And you read through it and it's just as normal as me saying, Lord willing, I'm going to go back, get on a plane and go to Texas in a day or two. That's just how they lived. It has something to do with prayer. That's all in, it's in all of these texts. It has something to do with the Holy Spirit falling on us and filling us. It's in all of these texts. It has something to do with preaching. It's in all of these texts. And it has something to do with persecution. And it's in all of these texts. And I was going to have us look at them up and say, do you, do, do you just, <laughs> am I the only one or do you see a pattern? And where there's the Holy Spirit at work and preaching the whole counsel of God and prayer and persecution, this would be the kind of life we'd live more often than now. So, a couple of other points, and I'm not sure even if I've got it here. There we go, here's the second one. And I'm going to have to just tell you the other one because I've got a bunch of verses in between this one. People don't need a vision to go to the mission field, to evangelize, to church plant, to witness. You don't need a vision, or we, we use the word call. <laughs> People don't need a call when you've got a verse. Go is about as you know, I often say to people, this is a problem text. You know, we have these things in the Bible we identify as problem text. And the problem with this text is it's so clear. And we deliberately, and I say this, we, not editorially, I mean, we deliberately choose, we make decisions every day of our lives to disobey the text. We do. Or we'd be doing more of it. I won't even go across the street and have a cup of coffee with my neighbor and share the gospel. I choose not to by not going. But one of my 14 grandkids asked me to go to McDonald's with him. <laughs> I'm there <laughs> every time. I know it looks it, right? Do you see the significance of the reality of what we're looking at here? This isn't just a cute little text to talk about mission with. This is an incredibly foundational verse that applies to living the Christian life whether it's cross-cultural or not. And then my third point was to be the Holy Spirit plus the Word equals goers and senders. And so let us pray. Let us seek, search the Word. Let us search our hearts. Let us pray the Word searches our heart. Let's ask God to find us out. Help us to see ourselves as the one in the text the few workers, but somebody that can do something and understand that God has this all worked out beforehand. And, and we don't use words that to every tribe like duty and responsibility. Those are all true and they're all even biblical. We use the word privilege. We get the privilege of going. We get the privilege of sending 
tell me something else that you're thinking about or currently actively doing with your life that's better than this. Convince me of that. And then I'll get excited and go travel and talk about what you're doing. But I just don't see it. And I have never tasted and experienced anything better. So by God's grace, may He encourage our hearts this morning of the place that we individually can play as sender or goer to communicate to an unreached world the glories of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen.